All right, thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Um, I think I was privileged to be able to uh, preach on this passage last year at this time. Uh, so it's, it's really fun to be able to dive back in again, uh, taking a slightly different angle than what we looked at last year. But really, um, this passage, this message, will be, I'll be setting the table for Good Friday and for Easter. And this is just a, such an important time for us as Christians. We really kind of bask in these epic truths that really are the foundation of our faith. So it's a great privilege for me to be able to do this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of give you sort of the roadmap of what I'm, how I'm going to be teaching this morning. Uh, just some things I feel like the Lord really showed me and opened up to me uh, that's really been so helpful for me in preparing. And all I'm hoping to do is pass on to you uh, some of the things that I feel like the Lord showed me. And has really worked in me to, to desire him more. And I hope uh, that that's the effect it has for you as well. So what I'm going to be looking at, beginning in the triumphal entry, which is really a profound event, somewhat uh, contradictory and ironic in some ways, but what I'm going to be looking at is how Jesus really um, was symbolically prophetic about God's future in this event. And so we're going to go from there to looking at how Jesus' death on the cross, while affecting real things for us, was also prophetically symbolic, kind of a revelation of God's future. Then we're going to move from there to the resurrection. Again, uh, not this was a historic event that affected real changes for us, um, but also a symbolically prophetic event, a revelation of God's future. Uh, and then I'm going to wrap up uh, in Philippians. And if you have your Bibles, please get those out. We're going to be moving through various texts. We're going to be wrapping up in Philippians where Paul teaches there that we become, as we embrace these truths and are transformed by them, we become prophetically symbolic of God's future, which is a wild thing to think about, that we become this uh, like Jesus uh, was. So um, it's a bit ambitious, but and I hope to be done by two. No, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, so I just I, I'm so grateful for Nicole's prayer, but I also just feel like I need to pray again just so that the Lord can can lead us all through this. So Father, we just are just blown away, God, by who you are. Um, Lord, we're just Again, amazed, Lord, at uh, the plan that you worked out with your Son, the Holy Spirit, what you've done through the cross and through your resurrection, and the things, Lord, you were signaling as you rode on that colt into a city under the boot of Rome, um, and you rode in as a victorious king, which is just uh, strange, but not anymore, um, because of what you've revealed. So, Lord, I just pray, lead me, guide me, help me, Lord, as I seek to help your people. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just flow out into every home, every living room. Lord, that you would engage your people with your word and that you would transform us by it, Lord. That we would desire your kingdom more than anything. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, first, we have to just remember um, that Jesus did come as a prophet, uh, certainly more than a prophet, but not less than a prophet. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, the words spoken about Jesus as a prophecy, um, here is the Lord saying to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And Jesus says about himself in Luke 4, when he, after reading from Isaiah, and he said, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, the people rejected him, and he said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So Jesus there speaks about himself as a prophet. And so, um, and this is what I believe Jesus is doing. He's being prophetic as he comes on this cult, actually in fulfillment of Zechariah. But as he comes into the city on this cult, he's symbolically portraying something in the future. Um, and the Lord does this. He uses prophets to act out certain things. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. Um, because pictures are worth, uh, worth more than a thousand words. You know, they're, they're powerful. Symbols are powerful. So, for instance, Jeremiah would smash a pot, you know, in, in the marketplace in front of the people. And the people obviously would look over and say, hey, why did you, you do that crazy thing? And then he would go on and he would talk about, well, what this represents is the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, or he, the other thing that he did was right before the siege was about to be laid upon Jerusalem, the, the foreign nation was going to come in and take all the land. He bought a plot of land, which would be, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Well, it was, a symbolic, it was a symbolic prophetic moment in which he's saying, this represents the fact that this land will be returned to Israel. Okay, and so we could go through a bunch of them. I won't, uh, well, maybe a couple more. Uh, Ezekiel is one where he, I'm going to try not to go too long on this because there's a bunch of them and they're really cool actually. But um, Ezekiel got up and he packed up all his belongings carried them on his back, and started digging through the wall of Jerusalem. And the people are gathering around, like, what are you doing, you know? Well, he was symbolically representing what would happen in the future, that the king would have to do this. This is how the king would have to escape the siege that would come upon Jerusalem. Um, one more. No, actually, two more. Hosea. Hosea. <laughs> Hosea, that's the, this is the wildest one. He's like told to marry a promiscuous woman. Like God says, I've got the perfect wife for you. Gomer, you know, she's, she's known for her pr promiscuity. And so he marries Gomer. And so people would ask, well, why would he pick Gomer as a wife? And the answer would be, this represents Israel's infidelity. So Hosea is standing in the place of God. Gomer is standing in the place of, of Israel. And so this is what God does. He communicates through these powerful symbols because they are powerful. Um, symbolism, we tend to think of that as like, oh, it's just a symbol. No, no, symbols are really important. And we see that in our culture. Uh, particularly in our country in this day, the flag is a symbol, right? Even the colors represent things, and it represents our nation. So when you stand with your hand over your heart, you're engaging in a symbolic act. You're stating a devotion you have for your country. Same as when you kneel. Isn't that powerful? That elicits all kinds of emotional responses, both, po both positive and negative, 
Um, because you, kneeling before the flag is making a powerful statement. Symbols are powerful. If you don't think, just think about when, uh, I think about like when you get engaged. What's the symbolic act you do when you're engaged is you give a ring, right? And it's not just about the diamond. It's that it's the preciousness of the diamond speaks about the preciousness of the relationship. Okay, so and I'm going to, this is my last example of symbols and the power of symbols. And this was back when, a long time ago, I've been married 30-something years, praise the Lord. But early on, it was a little sketchy. Um, and I remember... <laughs> We were going through a, I think we just had a fight, and my wife, I'll never forget, I was sitting in my fraternity house room, and she shows up in the doorway, she rips off the ring and throws it at me and hits me right in the chest. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a powerful symbolic act. <laughs> I didn't actually think that, because I knew what it meant. The symbol of our love and our commitment to each other just hit me in the chest. Okay, and that was saying something. Um, so I didn't reflect on the symbolism. I got up and ran after her like, hey, because I knew that was a powerful symbol, right? It's powerful. So symbols are really, really powerful. And so when Jesus comes riding in to Jerusalem on this cult, we know it was a powerful symbol. And it wasn't just this cute event. Oh, look at the, look at the God of the universe who would choose a cult. It wasn't like... It was, no, it was in fulfillment of a passage in Zechariah of a victorious king. And we're going to go to Zechariah 9 in just a second, but we see that with the response of the people. It's like they're celebrating. They're saying, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, um, save, Hosanna, save. Um, they're, they're just shouting and dancing um, because this was a powerful symbol. Okay, and we see why if we turn to Zechariah 9 and we take a look at that passage. Now, I just want to pass this on because this has been so good. Um, a teacher who I really respect, N.T. Wright, always says, if you have an Old Testament passage, somebody in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, you go back there and you read not just the passage, oh, there it is, read around it because you're going to get the whole sense of why the New Testament writer would quote that passage. Well, you're going to have a whole sense of the power of this symbol of Jesus riding into Jerusalem from this passage. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but Zechariah 9.1 begins with God cataloging all the nations that would be defeated. All the enemies of Israel that would be defeated. Okay? And it, it culminates in verse 8 of chapter 9. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Okay, here we go. The NIV has this great chasm, right, between uh, verse 8 and 9. But really 9 comes right after this, right on the heels of it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle in riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here it is, the enemies are defeated. Now he's riding on a colt because peace now reigns. 
there's peace in the land. So he comes in as a victorious king. In the, now look how it goes on. Verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So here is this victorious king bringing this amazing victory in which peace now reigns on earth. Think about that. No more conflict. No more oppression. Um, here is this, and the king would bring this about. Now, the thing that makes Jesus coming in at that time symbolically prophetic is that had not happened. Okay? Just like we looked before. Things uh, with Ezekiel packing up his things. It had not happened yet. The symbols are, are prophetic. They're looking forward to something that will happen. It's like a revelation of the future. So when Jesus comes riding in on that colt, here's a revelation of God's future. Now, they really didn't know how this would come about, right? It was kind of a mystery. It's like a riddle. They just, you know, he's just, he's announcing it. Now, we get a little bit of a clue in Zechariah 9, because he goes on to say, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Now, they likely didn't know what that meant at the time, but we do now. It's like with riddles. Aren't riddles weird? It's like when, you, when someone tells you a riddle, you have no idea what the answer would be. But once they tell you the answer, it's like, wow, that's obvious. It's kind of how we look at the Old Testament. We look back and we say, oh, yeah, the blood of my covenant. That's what Jesus would say right in the upper room. This is the blood, my blood of the new covenant, right? So how would Jesus bring this victory about? Well, this is what we're about to celebrate in this season, Good Friday. He would bring about this victory through his own death. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He would usher in peace between God and man, and man and man, and woman and man, and the whole creation. He would usher it in, and he would enable it through his death. Um, this would be crucial to bringing peace. So Jesus, as he comes in as a victorious king, is looking through this moment to the cross in which he would begin to execute the plan to bring peace on earth. Uh, secondly would be the resurrection. You know, this is how God would bring his victory to all the nations, to the end of the earth. Before it had been kind of locked up in Israel, right? But now he's going to raise from the dead and become what Paul calls a life-giving spirit that would be universal. Um, so this salvation would now be universal to the ends of the earth. That's how he would bring this out. His message would be carried by messengers, led by the Holy Spirit, enabled by the Holy Spirit throughout the whole earth. And this is what I think another sign. While we're on signs, um, you remember in, in Pentecost what happened there? They received tongues, that is, other languages. And what that symbolically represented was this, this reality that this message now is universalized. We're going out beyond the walls of Israel, out into the world. And so children of Abraham will come from every nation. And that's what makes the Great Commission so important, right? So... 
This is how Jesus would bring about this universal peace. But we also have to reflect on this part, too, that Jesus' death, while accomplishing real, a real and crucial purpose, also was prophetically symbolic. Okay? His death was both of those things. A real event in history in which he really died an excruciating death and really accomplished our salvation. But was also, at the same time, prophetically symbolic. It was a revelation of the future. It was a revelation of how God thinks and feels about man's rebellion and sin, and how God will punish it. This is really important. And I'm just going to begin. We're going to look at several points to, to show this. And why I think this is important, it's because, wow, this makes, it makes things urgent. Um, if this is a symbolic, prophetic representation of what God will do, right, then um, it really puts a new sort of weight on evangelism, on our family members and what they're doing, where they're going. Um, it, it really kind of intensifies in a good way. Um, but let, let me show you this. Um, I'm not going to just say it. We need, to, we need to look at how this happens. You remember Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, um, take this cup, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if I got it exactly right, but you remember that, the cup. And that's an important thing. Because when you read about the cup, say in Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, and Revelation 14, 10, the cup is in reference to the cup of God's wrath, to the wine of God's fury, it's it said. So this is the cup that over and over again, if you look at those passages, speaks about either Israel needing to drink the cup or the whole world needing to drink from this cup of the wrath of the Lord. Well, in, uh, I'll just, call, just read one passage in reference to it, and this is Revelation 14, speaking of the judgment at the end. And it says, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Now listen to what he's, John says here in verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commands and remain faithful to Jesus. In other words, do not take the mark of the beast. We have no time to get into what that might mean. But anyway, just this is the future of those who would deny the Lord. This cup will be poured out, and again, universalized, okay? Not just against Israel, it's going to be all the nations, all those who reject the message, all those who turn away from Jesus. Remember Jesus saying it's going to be better for um, Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you 
who reject the Lord. Okay, there's something intensely wrong about rejecting the gospel. And so when Jesus takes the cup, and this is again the prophetic symbolism, what happens to him on the cross is a revelation. Okay, it's a revelation of what will happen in the future. Now, not precisely, exactly, but it's a, it's a picture of the kind of anguish and suffering that people will experience as the cup of the Lord's wrath is poured out on them. Now, this, this should make, it makes me tremble to think about it. Um, um, other ways we see this is just the, the things that happened around the crucifixion. If you remember, three hours of darkness. What would be one of the judgments that would be poured out upon the earth? Darkness. There was an earthquake right after Jesus died. Um, what, are the, one of the, what are the judgments that are going to take place? It says in one place in Revelation where all the cities of the earth will collapse through this great earthquake. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the, the terror of that? And so when they experienced this tremor, you know, at, at the foot of the cross, the rocks falling, this was a picture. It's a prophetic snapshot of the future. Um, Jesus, in Luke 23, I believe, alludes to this, too. Do you remember the women who are weeping and following him as he's being taken up uh, to be crucified? This is Luke 23. Um, it just struck me as I read it this week. Because um, it's always, it's a little mystifying sometimes, but I think this is what he's pointing to. He says, these, these women are mourning and wailing for him. And, you know, you would think you would say, well, oh, thank you for feeling bad. I, I, I appreciate your, you know, your compassion. But he says to them, he warns them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Think about that. And at first you would think, wow, that's kind of cold. But no, not really. Because he's saying, what is happening to me right now could very well happen to you. And I don't want that to. So I think it's really an expression of love, right? Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. Then they will say, here's, a, here's this end time judgment statement that we also see in Revelation is just profound to me. Then they will say to the mountains fall on us into the hills cover us. Like that would be better than what we're, going, what we're experiencing right now. And then he says, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's a fairly cryptic and a bit obscure, but I think what he's getting that is Jesus is going to face this judgment, and he's righteous. What happens to those who face judgment and they're not? Usually green and dry has to do with, you know, a statement of holiness or righteousness. So these are powerful, you know, pictures of uh, what God thinks and feels about sin. And that could be a whole other conversation like, well, why does he feel that way? You know, why so intensely in, does he come against uh, people who rebel against him? 
but that's another message. Um, the final passage I want to I want to look at because I want to bring some light into this um, is Paul's statement in Romans three twenty five. He says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Notice that statement. It's a showing of God's justice. Um, He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. And so I think that's what he's alluding to. That is, God will show his justice. But in Christ, he's showing it now in the present time. This is God's justice against sin. But this is, he, he goes on, so as to be just, that is to punish sin, and be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There's a lot there. But basically what he's saying is, yes, the cross is a demonstration of God's justice. And at the very same time, It's how God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So in a a strange way, it's like we run to the cross to where God's wrath is poured out because it's there we get our justification before God because it's Jesus who bears the wrath. It's Jesus who takes that on. So the place where God's wrath is poured out is the place we are saved. Isn't that wild? It's so ironic, but so perfect. Because there, God is just. And at the same time, God justifies. And I have to bring in this verse, too, because Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates and shows his love for us. For while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is both. It's a demonstration of justice and a demonstration of love at the very same time. Um, So... Again, I hope, I hope I'm communicating clearly about the cross and its revelatory meaning. Okay, it's a revelatory, it has this revelatory effect, impact on us that should transform us and show us the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of the gospel. And then the resurrection has the same function. In Jesus' resurrection, while accomplishing a real and crucial purpose, That is, it shows God's victory over sin. It stands as a prophetically symbolic revelation of the future resurrection and vindication for those who have faith in Jesus. So it does a real, it's a real event, but also is symbolically prophetic to show this is your future if you trust in Christ. This is a picture of what's going to happen to you. It's a symbolically prophetic event, a revelation of the future. And uh, just one thing I want to mention real quickly, I don't know if you remember in Matthew's gospel, there's this sort of quick mention, and Matthew's the only gospel that has this, is right after Jesus dies, and there's the earthquake, which is the symbol of God's judgment, but then also the tombs were opened, and I don't know if you remember, but some of the holy people came out of the tombs. It's like, and it's just mentioned like that. It's like, Matthew, couldn't you have like dedicated a chapter to that? We'd like to know more about that. Like, what is that? Did they just, did they just come out and then die a few years later? Were they glorified bodies? He really doesn't describe it. 
Um, I think it may have been something like Lazarus, who didn't, he wasn't raised to a glorified body. He was raised and then he would die again. And I'm wondering if this was, but it was, it was prophetically symbolic of a future event of the resurrection of the righteous. Um, the holy people came out. So again, just another, what we can look at is a uh, symbolically prophetic moment. Um, and I'm going to turn now to 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul talks about the resurrection like this. He says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, and we still do, we're mortal because we're sons of Adam, daughters of Adam and Eve, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first, or he says first fruits, but here's the order. Christ the first, first fruits, then when he comes, that is when he returns again, those who belong to him. So Christ first becomes a symbolic representation, uh, symbolic prophecy of the future. Then when he comes, all who belong to him will be raised. Then it says in verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So Jesus' resurrection isn't just his resurrection. It's a revelation of our re resurrection that is absolutely certain that you will be raised if you're in Christ if you're walking with the Lord, if you follow him, if you believe in him, you will be vindicated just like Jesus was vindicated. You will have a glorious body. In some ways, remember Jesus could walk through doors? I'm wondering, you know, who knows? I don't know. We're going to still be able to eat, which I'm really glad about. <laughs> but there's this future moment. It's revelatory. Um, and these two things, really, I believe, need to saturate our minds. It's like, here's the God of justice. Here's, what's, here's the reality that will fall upon this world. And also, though, keeps us on the narrow road because we see, no, this is what lies before. As I follow Christ, I will be vindicated and raised. So as I go through whatever God has for me, this is the goal of my life, resurrection. Um, and Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So these are the two, this is the, these are the only two choices we have. Um, rise to live or rise in order to be condemned. So this is not just about Jesus. It's Jesus revealing the, our future. Um, and as we get this into us, and as we become utterly persuaded, and this is what is really the role of the church and who we are to be for each other, we need to be convinced of this every day. Like, no, this is my future. 
This is my goal. Resurrection is my goal. What's your goal in life? To be raised from the dead. <laughs> and Paul would speak of it as an attainment, which is kind of odd, you know, but he would speak of it as, no, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection. It's like, no, this is what I'm striving for, a crown that will never end. I don't want just a gold medal from the Olympics. I want a crown that will never fade. I want to be raised and vindicated with my Lord. Um, now, we're going we're gonna to wrap up. How are we doing on time? Are we doing okay? Oh, not bad. Um, we're going to wrap up in Second Corinthians. Um, I'm sorry, Philippians. Um, okay, so we've looked at how Jesus' entrance was prophetically symbolic. We've looked at how the death was that way. And we've looked at how the resurrection is that. Again, it's a revelation of our future. And this is really what fuels Paul's ministry in his, in his life. Um, but then we're also going to look at how we become prophetically symbolic as we are persuaded about this future. Okay, we're, we're convinced, we're confident, we understand what's at stake. And as we really get this into us, we become a depiction of the future. Um, so first, I want to begin with Philippians chapter 1, um, and I'm just going to go through this pretty quickly, but Paul is in prison, uh, likely in Rome, and, but he's saying, look, don't be discouraged about this. It's actually a good thing. Um, and this is also what transforms, if we have these understandings about um, suffering as we walk that narrow road, looking forward to our resurrection, um, it transforms our suffering into something different, into some kind of a, not, it's not a gleeful thing, but it's like a satisfying thing, because the suffering itself is hope-giving. And this seems to be what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1. He says, now I want you to know, this is verse 12, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Okay, so first thing, no, it hasn't hindered the gospel. The gospel is now advancing. In a different way, maybe. He's not able to travel around, but it's advancing where he is. Um, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Okay, so what is this doing? It's bearing testimony to his authenticity. Like he could easily be not imprisoned. All he would have to do is stop doing what he's doing. But because he's continuing to do what he does, his authenticity is manifest. That is, he's convinced of the future. And the, being con this is a testimony of him being convinced. He's not just saying he's convinced. His life demonstrates that he's convinced. Right? If, you will if you're willingly jailed for something, and you could have it another way, that's a powerful statement. Um, and that's the one benefit. Second benefit, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God courageously and fearlessly. So there's this example that Paul 
It's almost like, and I wonder if it would be like, hey, Paul, are you doing okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm in, we're going to come to this in a little bit more, too, why I think he would think he's fine. But I, they're seeing this, and he's saying, okay, he's not broken by this. This hasn't crushed him. He's, he's in prison. He's still bearing testimony to Jesus, and he's fine. Okay, well, maybe I'll be fine, you know? Maybe it's not, maybe it's worse to hide the truth. Maybe then you're not so fine. And maybe if I speak the truth and I live the truth and I suffer for it, in some sense, that's emotionally satisfying. That's actually peace-giving. And I think this is what he was exuding here. Um, so they were encouraged to speak not, not just more, but fearlessly. Maybe being convinced themselves, no, this is, this is the revelation of God's future. This is what's at stake in what we're doing. Um, now, this is, that's the second benefit. Um, then we go down to verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't know if all your translations have deliverance. Um, but the same word, now this is the same word for salvation. And I think there are reasons why translations have chosen deliverance. But I agree with D.A. Carson, who I respect as an exegete. He says, no, this should be salvation. That Paul is not talking about getting out of jail. He's talking about that somehow... This imprisonment in his willingness to be imprisoned, that is, his taking up of the cross of Jesus, will turn out for his salvation. It maybe ties in to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This idea that there's this future resurrection vindication event that he will enjoy. This imprisonment and the willingness to go through this will result in good things for me. This is like, I'm convinced. In fact, my imprisonment, so this is where cross-bearing, it's a bad thing because it hurts or it brings us through discomfort. God turns it around to being, no, actually a good thing. There's like this joy as you do it because you're more and more assured of your future, which really kind of makes sense, right? It's like, if I'm not suffering for Jesus, I'm not sure how I will respond if I do. There's that sort of nagging, like, what would I do? But if you're doing what you hoped you would do and were afraid you weren't, wouldn't do for Jesus, then in that moment, there's this assurance, this joy, this expectation, right? And this is where Paul is so expectant and so certain of what he's going to receive. Read about it in 2 Timothy. He's like, I fought the fight. I'm wait. I'm I'm ready. Crown me, Lord, <laughs> which is kind of weird. It's like, no, you shouldn't say that. No, he's, he's utterly convinced. And I think it's because of the life he's, he's led that has brought him up to this moment that he just is so certain that he's going to be raised and vindicated. Um, so this is what I believe Paul is referring to. And what follows, I think, even nails it down for us. That's what he means because... I know what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance or salvation. I eagerly expect and hope 
that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And this is, he makes just this amazing statement. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's like, what? What? I don't think he's just being a superstar here. I think if, you, if, if we, if I, if I get these realities into me, like, yes, then we can say those words. Um, now, he goes on to talk about the church, and this is, this is where we're going to get into the prophetic symbolism of the church. Verse 27, because he now speaks to the Philippians. He's saying this for the Philippians' good. He's not just, he's saying, you know, what you do as a leader, right? You speak about your life, not just to speak about your life, but you want to, you want to lead others in that. And so now he turns to the, the, church, the Christians and he speaks to them. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which, and again, another interesting phrase. There is a way of being which is worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Notice what he says next without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. You'll be opposed, but don't be frightened. Just like Paul, he's in prison, but he's not afraid. There's something powerful about that. When you meet a human being who's not afraid, and in the midst of dire circumstances, they're not afraid. They're either mentally... they're just not aware like of their circumstances or there's something going on there that's really deep and I think this is what Paul is saying get these truths into you and then when these things happen to you and you're not afraid it's a powerful statement in what he says in verse 28 be without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you This is a sign to them. See that? This is a symbol. This is a prophetic symbol because it's prophetic because he's about to now go to the future. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. So they're opposing you. They're trying to get you to deny Jesus. You're, You're resisting them and you're not afraid. They're threatening you. They might imprison you. You're not afraid. You're not bothered. That's a powerful sign. And it's a sign that they will be destroyed. And it's also a sign of something else, but that, notice the future, you will be saved in that by God. And I think that's where it goes back to Paul, referring to his own salvation. Now he's saying, this is a sign that you will be saved in that by God. So when God returns and you endure this opposition, you will be vindicated, raised and vindicated as a child of God. God will say, yes. Well done. Well done. Oh, I'm so, oh, this is so good. And I think that's going to be the banquet, the wedding banquet. It's just going to be a celebration. Maybe we'll tell stories, you know. Yeah, I know, I was in prison. Or, oh, yeah, I know, I, 
I had cancer and, you know, I was able to, yeah, this, and all these stories of all this stuff that happened to us, cross-bearing things. And all the while, though, we were saturated, convinced by the resurrection, convinced by God's justice that will fall, convinced that Jesus took the justice for me, con utterly convinced. And um, to the point where to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's going to be a great celebration. Um, there's more. I mean, this is what Philippians is about. Um, one more. I'm going to read one more passage, and then we'll wrap this. Just from Philippians chapter three. Just to, I, I just encourage you just to really uh, sink into this. Here's Paul saying. Um, for the people whose mind are on earthly things, that is, I think, the ways of the world, not just physical things, but the ways of earthly things for Paul are the ways of the world. Um, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. We eagerly await. It's like, yes, you know. We long for his appearing, Paul would say in another place. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, okay, this is the expanse of his sovereignty and his power, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He's utterly convinced. Now he says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, who, you whom I long Love and long for my joy and crown. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord Jesus, dear friends. Notice, it's the knowledge of this future glorious resurrection is the way in which we now, in the present, stand firm. Keep that in mind. Um, so when he says rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. He's not saying just have wonderful times of worship, although I think he would be totally for that. I think it's more like this is rejoicing in the Lord. It's having these truths central to your life is rejoicing in the Lord. It's more than, it's more than worship. It's, or it's this deep way of being that exudes this absolute confidence in who God is in what he's going to do. Um, I'm just going to wrap up. I just pray the Lord uses this for you. Um, you know, I just... I just had an argument with my wife about vacation time. It's like, what? You know, it's like, what am I doing? I'm such a child. You know, and here I am now preaching this message. Like, if somebody could hear that, they'd be like, really? And I just say that because, I only say that because this is aspirational for me. It's like, I want to be this, and I want you to be this, and I want, our, our, I want us to be this. Like, yes. And this is where fellowship really is so important. Small groups, and this isn't just a pitch for this stuff. It's like, no, we need to be looking at each other. Yes, even in a Zoom meeting, looking at each other's faces and saying, yes. Oh, yes. This is real. This is real. Um, 
Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Oh, man, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me, I'm certain. So, Lord, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. I'm afraid. Teach me, Lord. Lead me, Lord. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. But I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, which I think is an Old Testament way of saying the resurrection life, when peace rules and reigns. I, I will see this, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Only do this, wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Father, I just pray, work this into us. Work this into my life. Lord, work this into the lives of your people. God, dwell within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Persuade us of these things. Jesus, we rejoice so much in what you've revealed. You've done so much, and we're so grateful to you. Lord, and we look forward to your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.